0: Good afternoon and congratulations to the class of 2014. Before I begin, I want to take a moment to thank J.K. Rawlings for furnishing the wardrobe for today. (laughs) I've actually always found the idea of academic regalia to be a little confusing. Nowhere else would stature be demonstrated by being in a robe at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, (laughs) save for perhaps the Playboy Mansion. Now, as commencement speaker, I follow in footsteps of such great and notable Californians as Congressional Democratic Leader Nancy Pelosi and Supreme Court Justice Goodwin Liu. And I'm not too proud to admit that I wasn't the first choice for commencement speaker this year. It was originally thought it should be someone with a more direct and interactional relationship with the law and the courts. The administration approached both Justin Bieber and Toronto Mayor Rob Ford (laughs) but apparently a commencement being held at the Mondavi center violated terms of their rehab agreements (laughs) so I was happy to step in and be with you in this auspicious moment of your lives and as you end your formal legal education I ask that you commit yourself to the cause of justice Too often we think of justice in the narrowest of terms, but in reality there are so many issues that require dedicated individuals to stand up and fight for just outcomes. The framers of the Fourth Amendment could not begin to believe or conceive of a world where personal information of every citizen is freely and readily available on the internet, and yet we must decide whether that information can or should be accessible to the government lacking a warrant. Who amongst you will stand up for the privacy of everyone? And who will respond? Who will argue and adhere to the ideals that a government's reach cannot extend into the private lives of its citizens without probable cause being found and due process being observed? And who amongst you will answer the argument in a world haunted by the lurking specter of terrorism? This is a debate that has been waged long before the Constitution was adopted, long before King John signed the Magna Carta. These are questions that stretch back to antiquity. One of the most famous debates to ever occur in the Roman Senate was centered on the question of due process. In 63 BC, Marcus Tilius Cicero served as council of Rome, and upon learning of a conspiracy to overthrow the Republic, Cicero had the Senate declare the Roman equivalent of martial law. He then captured and executed the conspirators without trial. What followed was an extraordinary debate in the Senate. Many of the leading members of the Senate contested back and forth on the legality of Cicero's actions. Julius Caesar led the opposition, conceding that although the conspirators presented a genuine danger to the Republic, The greater threat to the Republic came from allowing the precedent to stand that the council or any Roman citizen could deprive another Roman citizen of his life without first having brought the person to trial. A debate between two of the most iconic figures in history, waged nearly 2100 years ago, is as relevant today as it was in the time of the Roman Republic, and that's a powerful testament to the enduring nature of these questions and the continual search for justice, a search that continues to this very day. In a world where anyone can post vile and hateful words on somebody's wall or secretly record them on a webcam and post the video for all the world to see, at what point do we consider the line to have been crossed? At what point does free speech and free expression become an invasion of privacy? or a violation of the other person's 14th Amendment's rights? In a society where young children can be brought across the border by their parents without proper documentation, attend our schools, pledge allegiance to our flag, serve in our military, is it just to deny them the rights of citizenship? And then, what it is that we believe those rights entail? These are all questions we as a society confront every single day. And for my colleagues and me in the legislature, they take much of our consideration. From my first day that I was sworn in to the assembly, I've labored to live up to the oath that I swore as an assembly member, and the charge that's emblazoned over the rostrum of our chambers, where it says, legislatorum as justus legis condere. It is the duty of the legislature to pass just laws. And that's not a simple charge. In a large and pluralistic society, each legislator views questions of justice through their own prism and their own worldview. And so as I approach these often difficult questions, I turn to the wisdom that I first discovered as a high school student. And I'm sure many of you shared a similar experience that I had in reading Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham jail. April 12th, 1963, which happened to be Good Friday. Dr. King was roughly arrested as thousands of African Americans looked on. He found himself in jail for protesting in an action of civil disobedience against the pervasive segregation of the Alabama of his day. And as he sat in jail, he was brought a copy of an open letter published in the local newspaper. It was entitled A Call for Unity. It was published by white clergy calling upon Dr. King and his compatriots to abandon his protest through nonviolent civil disobedience. And without notes or access to source material, he embarked on answering that open letter. His entire response is a profound meditation on the nature of justice. It speaks to so much of our history as a nation of our imperfect struggle to form a more perfect union and live up to that first charge of our Constitution. There's one passage in particular that has a poignant resonance for anyone who's ever been called to cast a vote for or against a law in which justice was the essential question. In it, Dr. King speaks to how we can determine whether laws are just or unjust. And he recalls the teaching of St. Thomas Aquinas, concluding that any law that uplifts human personality is just and that any law that denigrates human personality is unjust. That passage, I believe, is a perfect distillation of how each of us can approach questions of justice, and it has been a source of guidance for me throughout my time in the legislature. I've read the letter many times, and it's always spoken powerfully to me But a few months ago, I was honored to have an experience that made those words on the page come to life in a very special way as if I was reading it again for the very first time. You see, in January, the legislature commemorated the King holiday on our floor, and we were privileged to have a special guest with us who I was honored to spend some time with. His name is Dr. Clarence Jones. Now, you may not know the name, but you're familiar with his work. Dr. Jones was Dr. King's lawyer and draft speechwriter, and he was the one who would smuggle in scraps of paper for Dr. King and smuggle out the finished work from that Birmingham jail. It was an honor to have the opportunity to spend some time with him and reflect on the fundamental transformation of American life that was brought about by those brave souls who devoted their lives to the cause of justice. This week, as you've heard earlier, marks the 60th anniversary of the ruling in Brown versus Board of Education. It is a time for us to reflect on those changes in the role that our state played in them. And many of you will recall that Brown was preceded, although not used as a precedent, by cases here in California. The decisions in Mendez versus Westminster Schools, Alvarez versus Lemon Grove School District, where parents of Latino children successfully challenged the segregation policies of the school districts in which they lived. These were the first successful challenges to segregated schools, coming years before the unanimous ruling in Brown versus Board of Education that led to sweeping transformation in American life. Over the last three years, you've had a unique perch as law students to witness a similar transformation in our society, where the law has evolved considerably in a variety of areas. Allow me to discuss one particular area, and that is in the discussion of marriage equality. Now for me, election night 2008 was a special night. I was celebrating my first election to the state assembly, and I'll always remember that it was the night where I gained the right to serve in the legislature and lost the right to get married. Of course, Proposition 8 was immediately challenged in the courts, and as a gay man, I had a vested interest in the outcomes of that trial, but I didn't know that in a certain manner of speaking I would be part of that trial as well. Between the filing of the challenge and the beginning of the trial, I'd been elected by my colleagues to serve as assembly speaker, making me the first openly gay person in American history to serve in that post in any state in our country. During... During the trial uh, portion of the case before Judge Von Walker was a discussion of whether the LGBT community was considered a suspect class, and whether we deserve strict scrutiny in the question. And this was a question that was really about the attempt to limit our rights and whether or not that action would be invalidated under strict scrutiny. It was a pivotal issue, and the proponents of Prop 8 argued that the LGBT community should not be viewed as a suspect class, and thus Prop 8 should not receive strict scrutiny. Now, during cross-examination of Gary Segura, that's former UC Davis professor Gary Segura, the attorneys representing the proponents of Prop 8 used my election as speaker as proof that the LGBT community had political power and therefore were not to be considered a suspect class. Reading the transcripts of that day's proceedings, you can imagine my reaction to see my name being invoked as proof that it was constitutionally sound to strip me and every other gay and lesbian person in California of our constitutional rights. There I was, the most powerful legislator in the most populous state in America, and yet I felt powerless to pass a law and right a wrong. My colleagues and I did what we could. We rallied the faithful and articulated our beliefs to the media and the public at large. I went so far as to change my biography and the official state documents to change the marital status from single to constitutionally prohibited. But then I realized that I had a different right, a right open to every citizen but usually only invoked by lawyers which is the right to file an amicus brief before the Supreme Court. So I joined together with 47 legal scholars from around the country and we filed an amicus brief to raise issues that we felt would not be raised during the court trial without intervention. For all the power and influence that comes with the office of speaker, the restoration of my rights could only be achieved by people with an understanding of the law and a passion for justice who successfully restored my rights and the rights of millions others across this country in the highest court of the land. We're still seeing the reverberation of that decision and the ongoing evolution in this area of law. The debate we're experiencing across the country is an apt reminder of another passage from Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail, where he wrote that all progress is neither automatic nor inevitable. Every step towards the goal of justice Require sacrifice, suffering, and struggle. The tireless exertion and passionate concern of dedicated individuals. Take a moment to reflect on that. Think about the marriage cases or the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. Think about the suffragettes a century before. Think about the founders who came together in Philadelphia in 1776 to proclaim self-evident truths about equality liberty and the pursuit of happiness. The gains we've made are a direct result of the tireless exertion of so many people devoted to the cause of justice. Now take a moment and reflect on why you chose to go to law school in the first place. Think about all those hours of studying, all those grueling exams, all the arguments and lectures, think about the friends you haven't seen and the family occasions you've missed. If Gwyneth Paltrow was here, she would uh, probably call law school a conscious uncoupling from your social life (laughs) and ask yourself, why did you make all of these sacrifices? Was it simply to join a prestigious law firm and settle the finer points of tax law? Or was it because you wanted to make a difference? Because you dreamed of being the next Clarence Darrow or Thurgood Marshall? The next Barbara Jordan or Sonia Sotomayor? Because you envisioned a day when you would stand before a judge armed with a righteous conviction and make the powerful argument that rights a grave wrong? Or a day when years of work on just legislation reached its conclusion with the president's signature or getting a phone call from a grateful client letting you know that because of your efforts, a polluted neighborhood will finally get cleaned up. You studied law for a reason, and I suspect that for many of you, that reason was to serve the cause of justice. You have so many opportunities ahead of you, and I strongly urge you to consider the totality of what you can do. You can work for a nonprofit that provides legal protection for our most vulnerable citizens whose rights have been violated. You can serve the people of California by arguing for justice for the victims of crime or for the accused. And as a sheer number of lawyers who serve as policy advisors in the Speaker's office can attest, you can serve justice by working directly to pass just laws. I certainly understand that many, if not most of you, leave here with significant financial obligations to meet as a result of your student loans. But there's a way to serve the public. The Department of Education maintains a public service loan forgiveness program. That program gives you the flexibility to fight for justice in a number of fields, from military service to public interest law, where your commitment can earn loan forgiveness. And I'm going to take a moment and ask your friends and family to write down this website. The robes don't lend themselves to writing which is probably why Dumbledore was so rarely appeared with a pen in his hand. The website is www.studentaid.ed.gov, www.studentaid.ed.gov. It has information on the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program, and I urge you to take some time to consider the possibility of public service, of devoting your career to the cause of justice through public service. There is no greater reward in life than knowing that you've made a difference in the life of someone else. Each of you have the potential and the ability to make a lasting impact. Each of you can write the laws that define justice for the 21st century. Each of you can be an agent of justice for people who don't believe justice will be theirs. Each of you can transform people's lives by standing up for their dignity and worth. As you walk out of this hall proud of your accomplishments and prouder still of the possibilities in front of you, I have one final request. Think of the directive from the great suffragette, Carrie Chapman Catt, who said, to the wrongs that need resistance, to the rights that need assistance, to the future in the distance, commit yourself. Thank you and congratulations, class of 2014. (laughs)